We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies edtech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com BE. That's IXL.com slash B-E. Welcome to Transformative Principle, where you learn how to be a leader and not just a manager of a to-do list. I am your host, Jethro Jones. You can find me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. Your to-do list is a hungry monster that is never satisfied. For the last year and a half, I've helped principals get awards, get promoted, and find the time to do the work that really matters. I recently opened a new mastermind slot. Schedule a call with me and let's overcome the stressed and isolated principal position together. Go to the show notes for this episode at transformativeprincipal.org and click schedule a call with Jethro. Hey, this is Jethro. Thanks so much for listening to Transformative Principal. I hope you enjoy this interview with Kiara Mascareñas. It is a great interview and just want to remind you to take the fall listener survey that's at transformativeprincipal.org slash survey. And most importantly on that, I want to hear about other principals who are doing great things because I want to interview them on this show and share their stories. So you can take that survey at transformativeprincipal.org slash survey. And thank you so much for listening. Here's my interview. All right. Welcome to Transformative Principle. I am excited to have Kiara Mascareñas from Education Elements on the program today. Uh, She is the author of a new book called The New Team Habits, A Guide to the New School Rules. And she is a toolkit creator for the New School Rules, Six Vital Practices for Thriving and Responsive Schools. Kiara, welcome and thank you for being part of Transformative Principle. Thank you so much for having me. So I should clarify before we go any further that this new book that you wrote is uh, New Team Habits. It's actually a workbook, and it is definitely not for, you know, curling up by the fire and reading this winter. It is for doing the work. Can you talk a little bit about how the book is structured and what you hope people get out of it? 
Yeah, absolutely. So when Anthony, Kawhi, and I, my co-authors, were sitting down to write this book, we've all been in the consulting space for a decade or so, but we realized that not every principal, not every school, not every district can afford to hire a consultant. And so we really wanted to create a guide. I think we all buy books and think, hey, I can implement this idea tomorrow. And then we struggle, right, to take the idea and translate it into action. So the entire purpose of this book is really to be that step-by-step guide, almost a built-in coach for you along the way to make sure you're actually making changes. Yeah. I think that that is really a great perspective. And as I, as you sent me the advanced copy of it, I sat down and started reading it and I was like, okay, this will be good. And the first little bit is, you know, something I could read by myself, but it's also in landscape view. And so it's, it's a little bit different. And then as I got into it, I thought, man, I wish I were reading this with some other people because that's what it's intended for and intended to lead your your team through a process to become better. And there's a lot of really great stuff in there. And we're not going to have time to talk about all of it. But I did want to drill down into one piece specifically that I think is really important and really challenging, especially for a leader to see himself or herself. And that's this idea of psychological safety. So can you start by talking a little bit about psychological safety, why it's important and what what we can do to create it? Yeah, absolutely. I might zoom up one level first, which is just to say that, you know, when we were writing the book, we were really trying to think about the small changes any leader and team could make that would impact them on a day-to-day basis. And so we came up with three buckets that we felt like every leader and every team was focused on every single day. And that was learning, meetings, and projects. And so this this habit around learning, um, which really is anchored in psychological safety and your question, um, is really thinking about how can we help create a culture of, of learning and sharing across our team? And one of the things we found, there's so many ways you can encourage, right? Collaboration and sharing and learning. But I think one of the foundational things that we feel like is often missing or isn't there isn't enough time dedicated to training folks on, especially school leaders and district leaders, is how do you create this environment of psychological safety? So to answer your question, I use the definition of Amy Edmondson, who's the Harvard researcher who really coined the term psychological safety. It was pretty interesting. She was actually um, doing research around medical teams a number of years ago, and she was trying to study what made certain medical teams more effective than others. And you would suspect, right, that the team that was more effective, that had fewer deaths, right, fewer like uh, complications from surgery, would be making less mistakes. But when her research team actually like studied all of these different medical teams across a few hospitals, they found that some teams were making more mistakes and being more effective. And she couldn't understand that. It didn't make any sense to her. And so she she dug in deeper. And what she found was that um, on some teams, there was more comfort and ability to talk about mistakes. And that those teams that actually had the safety to ask ideas, to question decisions, to admit mistakes, were ultimately more successful. And so she coined this term psychological safety to mean an environment where you don't have fear of retribution or punishment for asking questions, expressing ideas, admitting mistakes. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to unpack this just a little bit. And we like to talk in our modern culture about safe spaces and people can be whoever they want to be and and all that kind of stuff. And and this is a little bit different, though, in that the idea is that you have to be in a zone of 
being able to learn. And going back to uh, that TED talk that you had had mentioned and her research, she talked about she gave some vignettes of people who saw something was wrong, but then didn't say something because they were afraid of the repercussions that might happen. And and that's different than, you know, just feeling safe in a different perspective. And I appreciate that that difference when it comes to schools. What are the problems that you see with people who who don't feel psychologically safe and what mistakes happen that we don't talk about that we should be talking about? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and I really, I do want to echo, I think there are many different dimensions of safety and this is just one of them, the physical yep. safety, a sense of belonging and inclusion. All of these are really essential. And yeah, I love the example Jamie Edmondson shares in her TED Talks about what happens when someone doesn't speak up. I, I can think of a few examples I've seen in the, the schools I worked in that I taught in and coached in. Mm-hmm. Um, and now as I work across a few thousand schools, I think oftentimes people are afraid to admit they don't know what they're being asked. So I'll give an example about myself. When I was a teacher, I was asked to implement writer's workshop. Now I was a new teacher. I didn't want to disappoint my principal or the lead teacher for our grade level. And so I didn't question or, or even speak up to say, I don't know what I'm doing, right? We got, we all got a training on writer's workshop and the understanding was everyone would be implementing it with success the next week. It took me many months of failing and feeling like I was really wasting the time, the learning time of the students in my class before I felt confident enough to ask someone for help. And even then I asked someone who didn't work at my school because I didn't want the other teachers or my principal to think I wasn't a good teacher. And so that's just a small example from my life. But I think these, the fear of admitting you don't know something, of asking a question you feel like others might know the answer to, or worse yet, admitting you made a mistake, can feel very high stakes, even though I, I wouldn't have gotten fired, right? I probably wouldn't have, would have gotten the support I needed. But for some reason, I didn't feel safe asking those questions. And my students really suffered as a result. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that this is that that encapsulates perfectly a struggle that I faced in my school last year, which was that, you know, we're doing a lot of personalized learning in my district and I'm very much on board with that. And I've been a proponent of it for years and came to this district so that I could do more personalized learning stuff and was like drawn to it like a moth to a flame. Right. And so I was really excited about it. And so I would say things to my teachers with such certainty that I was right that I unwittingly made them feel like they were not psychologically safe to disagree with me. And so they would then not feel good about what I said, but not tell me anything. And that was a really hard piece of feedback for me to, to discover because, you know, people don't tell you that kind of stuff. Right. And so I had to do a lot of reflection and thinking about the situations before I finally recognized that that's what was going on. And so People, teachers with, you know, great intentions and great desires to do good things and good skills would be struggling with that, but felt like I was going to judge them or be condescending to them if they let me know that they didn't agree with what with what I was saying. But in reality, Kiara, all I wanted to know was, are you on board or not? And if you're not, let's talk about it. But that's not how it came across. And so. So I think I put people in a difficult situation without even realizing it. And, you know, I think that was really tough for a lot of them. Yeah. And if I can, I think 
take some of the blame off of you for that situation. I think <laughs> in the United States in particularly, um, in particular, I think we're raised with um, two really strong archetypes of what a leader should be, right? One is a leader should be the person who has the best ideas, right? We live in a meritocracy or a acclaimed meritocracy, right? Where the best ideas and the best people should thrive. And two is we think of leaders as being someone who are smarter than the folks they're leading, right? So should be making fewer mistakes. And so I think when we start interrogating those archetypes, you know, we start to reveal how things that you might have been doing, which is asking, hey, how can I help you, are are feeding into this larger um, social contract, really, that you have between you and your staff, right? Who you want to uphold, I'm a leader who has the best ideas, whether you're doing it consciously or not. And they also don't want to question whether you have good Mm -hmm. ideas. There's two two books I would plug that I think any principal would really benefit from reading might be helpful for you with your um, school. (laughs) (laughs) One is the book um, Multipliers by Liz Wiseman. Yep. Love that. I've interviewed her too. Oh, amazing. Oh, I'm going to listen to that interview. Good stuff. There's so much good stuff in that book. But one of the things, one of the quotes that still sticks with me many years later is that as soon as a leader starts speaking, everyone else starts orienting. Yeah. Right. And she uses the example, which I've used this exact um, system with many principals and even superintendents to say, give yourself five poker chips, right? And how many times are you going to talk and be the ideas guy, ideas person versus giving others the space. And so I think like even changing the number of times, right, you're asking questions or speaking versus having others be the one to ask are you ready for personalized learning? Are you not can change some of those power dynamics. And then two, there was an article in the New York times, I think two years ago now called why talking about failure is crucial for growth. It brings in some of Amy Edmondson's research and another woman, Alison Woodbrooks, who's also a researcher at Harvard. And what it talks about is how we have a bias, right? And distance. We naturally distance ourselves from people who seem too perfect. It's the reason we all love celebrity gossip, right? We want to see like perfection taken down. And when we as leaders feed into this idea that I need to be the smartest, I need to have the least mistakes to be a good leader, we're actually, without knowing it, creating distance between ourselves and the the teams and people we're leading. And so that article really pushes us to think about, even though it feels yucky, it doesn't feel good for anyone to admit a mistake. Every time you do that, you make yourself as a leader more human and you make it easier for other people to express their ideas. Yeah, that's really, really powerful. One of the, so having read Multipliers and talked with her about it and and knowing about that piece, that is something that I really tried to do. And the challenge for me personally was that I wore my feelings on my face, I think. And so people would say, are you mad about something? And I wouldn't be, but it would come across that way. And it's just one of those things where I, I need to continue refining that and getting better at that. Like I know the theory and now I actually need to put it back, put it into practice, which, you know, is tough. And, you know, if you're, you're listening to this right now and you feel like that could be you, or there's some other thing that you're not good at, it really does go a long way to, to helping people you know, get over that and help you get better when you do talk about it. And I did have one teacher that was my confidant that would say, Hey, Jethro, you, you look like you don't like this idea. 
And that, that was really good feedback because then I could do something with that. You know, if, if nobody ever talks about it or says anything, then it's really hard for anybody to change or get better. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It creates this feedback loop, right? Where you're asking for feedback, but if you're not getting it, you don't know what to change. Mm-hmm. You said two really, I think, powerful things. One is just the importance of noticing, right? So even just noticing, knowing that this is something people might be feeling and noticing when it happens is the first step to change. And then I think too was like, it's it's hard to make these big shifts, right? To say, I go from having a meeting where people are afraid to speak up to suddenly having a culture where everyone does. And that's a big reason why we wrote this book and really focused on habits. We really think habits are like that tiny pebble, that thing you can do every day, like brushing your teeth that can create those ripples that eventually create psychological safety, right? You can't, implementing psychological safety isn't a thing you just switch on tomorrow. It's made up of lots of tiny changes. Yeah. And, you know, one of the other things that I thought about while, while I was reading this section of the book was that she, she gives three suggestions for how to overcome it. One, frame your work as a learning problem. Like this is how we, this is not a, a thing to accomplish. This is a learning problem that we need to figure out the answer to. And then acknowledge our own fallibility and say, I can't see everything and I can't get everything right. And then model curiosity by asking questions. And so the last piece of modeling curiosity by asking questions is sometimes our questions come across as uh, statements of condemnation instead of as, as sincere questions. And so a lot of that has to do with tone of voice and what you're actually asking. What's your advice on asking questions to help people feel psychologically safe? Yeah, I really think of those three pieces of of advice as linked together. So I always try to think about before I ask that question, besides thinking about the tone of voice, like what foundation have I laid? What signal have I given my team to know that this question is coming from a genuine place of advice seeking, right? Versus that condemnation. So if you don't mind, mm-hmm. I'll use your example, right? Um, one one way yeah. that you could say, you know, ask ask your staff about their feelings around personalized learning is, hey, uh, you know, we're rolling out personalized learning. So does anyone have a problem with that, right? Or does anyone have a <laughs> 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 like, right, The most curt version, I'm sure that's not what you did. But th- those are, that's easy. I'm being funny, but that's easy for us to do in a day where we're busy, right? We have a quick staff meeting, just mm-hmm. let it out. I think if we use the three tips that Amy Edmondson gives, starting with really naming, how is this a learning problem? So, hey, we are the first, one of the first districts in our state or in our district, one of the first schools in our district to be rolling out personalized learning. No one knows what they're doing yet. And I really care about this. And I think I have a pretty good idea. But to be honest, I've had good ideas before that haven't worked out. So I'm really looking for your advice in terms of like how our leadership team can best support you in implementing personalized learning. Tell me what we should be thinking about. And yes, it takes an extra minute, right, to do those sentences. But in that, you can name, it's a learning problem for everyone, challenge for everyone. I've made mistakes before, and so I might not get this right. And I'm seeking advice from you. There is nothing more that people like than being called on for their advice. Right. That is definitely true. Good point there. Yeah. I mean, did that feel, how did that feel to you? Like the first versus second version? Knowing probably neither of those are you exactly, but that was my best invitation. (laughs) That was pretty good. Um, So the first one, obviously, like you don't feel like, like you really have a say in it or anything. You know, one of the things that 
I, I went to a new school a few years ago and they said, a lot of people said, I'm done with committees because the decision's already been made and the committee is just a waste of time because they don't really want input. They just want someone to say, yes, we can go on with it. And, and that like, oh, that breaks my heart because there's power in giving feedback. And, and that first example was no feedback necessary. We're doing this no matter what. And then this, the second one makes a lot more sense and sounds a lot more like what I think of in my mind, but that may not be what's coming out, you know? And so, so that's where, where I definitely need to, to work at that. And, and you're totally right about seeking advice from people. That is really powerful. And it does make a huge difference because people feel the appreciation and compassion when you do ask for advice instead of just, you know, saying this is what we're doing at period, end of story. Yeah, I truly believe humans are natural instinct is to help each other. And so asking advice provides that opportunity for someone to help you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So one of the other things that I thought about as it relates to this is new teachers, especially teachers that are, that haven't attained tenure yet. I've had numerous times where I finally break through with a new teacher and then they say something to the effect of, well, people tell me I shouldn't say anything because I don't have tenure yet and you can just fire me for anything you want. And that like that mentality, like you think once you get tenure, you're finally going to grow some like a backbone and start speaking your mind. That's probably not going to happen. And that doesn't happen for for many years until you're so fed up with how awful things are that you start speaking your mind about everything. And you come across as this crotchety old person who doesn't want to have anything to do with anything. Right. And and so it's like this weird dichotomy of, you know, how do you help, especially those new teachers feel psychologically safe when culturally they're taught and told by their older peers, don't say anything because you don't have tenure and you could be fired immediately. How do you, how do you break through to to that group? Yeah. I mean, I think there's so much deference laid to people who are in positions of power and authority, right? So whether that's you, because you actually have the power to fire them or a veteran teacher because they defer to them based on their experience, right? Or tenure at the school. So I think, and that's why in the book, we really focus on this habit of talk about mistakes. The more that people in positions of authority and power can model talking about mistakes, the more you are showing your own vulnerability and making it easier for others. I'll give a really small example. I was working with a school, I live in Denver. I was working with a school in Colorado And we did a check-in question, which is sometimes how we start meetings. But I talked to the principal ahead of time because I knew he had a lot of new staff in the circle. And I said, I'm going to ask people to share a mistake and what they learned from it in their life. It could be personal. It could be professional. But I want you to go first because what you say is going to set up how far and, and vulnerable other people get. And he went pretty deep. I mean, he said... I know that I say no to our staff too much. And here's like some of the ways it's impacted our school. And here's how I'm trying to work on it. And by by signaling that, just that one person in that one moment, it opened up this whole space in the next few hours of us being together where people really felt a lot more comfortable asking questions and admitting mistakes. So I, I really think there's a power, the same structure that prevents people from speaking because they're new can actually enable them to speak more freely if used to model vulnerability. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's a great story, Kara. And and what I like about that is that the the power that you wield as the principal or leader in the school is phenomenal and you can use it for good or you can use it for evil. Right. And, 
you can use it to shut people down or you can use it to give people permission to be open and free. And I think that that's a really great point that you just made that, that I want to, I want to noodle on for a bit. And, and next time I talk to you, we'll have to continue that conversation because, because that's really, really powerful. I really like that. Yeah. I love it. My husband always says like leaders are, should be jujitsu artists, you know, which is the art of martial arts where you absorb the force of another and turn it back against them. And I think that's what like the best leaders do is you take the situation, which is teachers are fearful to speak up and you think about, well, what's the hidden opportunity in that, that I can create. Mm. I'm not a jujitsu master yet, but that's what I aspire to be. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's, that's pretty powerful. So the last question that I ask each person is what is one thing that a principal can do this week to be a transformative leader like you? Mm. (laughs) Uh, I appreciate the compliment. I I aspire to be a transformative leader, (laughs) but I think, you know, given what we spoke about, I think one of the best things a leader could do right away is next time you're going to, in front of your staff, think about those three questions that we went through from Amy Edmondson. How can you frame something as a learning challenge? How can you um, share your own fallibility or vulnerability? And how can you model curiosity by asking for advice? And I think if you do those three things, anytime you're in front of a, a staff member or your team, um, it'll have a huge impact. Well, that is great. And I encourage everybody to get with your team, buy a copy of this book for all your team. And uh, um, you can get the website at newteamhabits.com and you can get the book there as well. Any parting words before we go, Kiara? Uh, No, I just, I so appreciate you letting me join you. Um, I really liked our conversation. I can't wait to dig in deeper in in Denver together. Excellent. Me too. It's going to be great. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE.